Hey, you guys want to hear an incredible story that I was just reading about in the uh, Washington Post and in The Guardian and in Newser and in Biography and in the Sacramento Bee and in NPR? According to all of these news reports that came out coincidentally just over the past few days, Ulysses S. Grant was arrested Well, he was president in 1872. Yeah, according to all of these news outlets, President Grant used to enjoy driving his own horse-drawn carriage, and apparently he liked to drive fast. And one time, he got arrested for speeding. The arresting officer, William West, reportedly said, I'm very sorry, Mr. President, to have to do it, for you are the chief of the nation, and I am nothing but a policeman. But duty is duty, sir, and I will have to place you under arrest. What a story about the rule of law over a nation of men. Isn't that weird and funny and almost certainly apocryphal? It's an incredible story because it's not credible. I say it's almost certainly apocryphal because the only evidence that it ever happened is a newspaper anecdote from the Washington Evening Star in 1908. 36 years after the alleged incident with the president occurred. You would think that if the sitting president of the United States were arrested, it might have made some news at the time, at least a headline or two, that someone might have mentioned it or written about it even once over the ensuing 35 years. But no one did because it almost certainly did not happen. And the only reason that the liberal media are reporting this 115-year-old fable as news right now is so they can normalize arresting U.S. presidents in order to justify their plans to jail Donald Trump, who is not only the current president's predecessor, but also the current leader of the opposition. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. We're going to get to more important news later, like how a lady is now identifying as a red-tailed hawk. But we've, we've got to get to some kind of minor, trivial stories first, like how the libs are going to arrest the opposition leader in the United States, a former U.S. president. This story, it just shows you the anatomy of fake news so clearly. A, a news story from 1872... <laughs> Ah, you know, it took us uh, 150 years, but we finally decided this is newsworthy, and we're going to run it all on pretty much the same day in all of the liberal outlets, just because, isn't it just kind of historically interesting? I mean, it probably didn't happen, but hey, when we arrest Trump, don't be too angry. That's, That's what they're saying. You can't believe a thing that these people say. My new rule of thumb is, whatever these people say, the liberal media, the elected politicians, the ruling class, whatever they say, just assume the opposite is true, which is why I would recommend you take a look at your bank accounts. If you've got some investments in stocks, you got a 401k, maybe you take a little peek into that right now, because I am now convinced the economy is absolutely headed for the gutter. And the reason I'm convinced of that is because our Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, said this. Take an economy that is 
performing very well. We've had the fastest recovery from a downturn um, that we've ever seen and the fastest recovery of any nation around the globe. Um, the unemployment rate is near a 50-year low. The economy is doing well. That's the phrase, that one right there at the end. That is, to me, the strongest indication that we are headed for economic chaos. When Janet Yellen says the economy is doing well. Janet Yellen, you might recall, is the woman who told us in 2021, quote, inflation is likely to be transitory. Remember that? Oh, you guys are worried about inflation. Don't worry. Inflation's likely to be transitory. I guess everything's transitory on a long enough time horizon. Our whole lives are transitory. (laughs) But when we say transitory, we usually mean it's going to be a brief period of time, then we'll move on. We are now in 2023 and inflation remains at or around 30-year highs. It's been two years now. Notice she, she... dings off all of those different economic indicators. Oh yeah, it's good. The unemployment rate's pretty good and this, that, and the other. She doesn't mention inflation. She doesn't mention the economic indicators that show that our country is not headed in the right direction. In a stable country, you could have some belief, you could have some faith in what your rulers are telling you. In our country, especially after three years of being lied to with ferocity and ubiquity from our ruling class about the virus and the lockdowns and the masks and the vax and the everything, the much more prudent, reasonable conclusion to draw is that whatever our rulers tell us, assume the opposite is true. Speaking of the vax, much of the wrongness, I am convinced, from our ruling class owes to their corruption. Yes, they're not very well educated. I'm sure they've all got degrees from Harvard and they've all, they've all got very fancy credentials, but they're not very well educated. They don't know basic things. They don't know what a man is. They don't know what a woman is. Katanji Jackson is up for the Supreme Court and she's asked, what is a woman? And she's got two Harvard degrees. She can't answer the question. So they're not very well educated. But I think another big aspect of this is that there is just systemic corruption. I think that explains a lot of what happened during COVID. Rand Paul showed this yesterday in the U.S. Senate. He was grilling the CEO of Moderna, and he pointed out a strange little potential conflict of interest between the regulatory agencies and Big Pharma. Moderna recently paid NIH $400 million. Do you believe it creates a conflict of interest for the government employees who are making money now off of the vaccine to also be dictating the policy about how many times we have to take the vaccine. Good morning, Senator. Uh, Indeed, we recently made, before Christmas last year, a $400 million payment to the NIH for uh, an old patent that they had developed, not related to COVID, but useful in the development of a COVID vaccine uh, to, to pay them for their work. Uh, it's for the U.S. government to assess how that money should be Do you think it creates a conflict of interest for the same people deciding the policy of how often we have to take the vaccine to also be making money the more times we take the vaccine? Yes it, or no? This is for the government to decide. Senator. You have no opinion on whether or not it creates a conflict of interest? No, what do I know? How could I? I'm just the CEO of a major corporation, an international. What do I know about simple questions and incentives? and corruption. No, that is for you to decide. 
I'm not asking for us. I've already made, sorry, I've already made my decision, Mr. Moderna person. I just want, what are you thinking? What's your opinion? Oh, ho, 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 I don't have an opinion. I don't even know if he's French. Of course he has an opinion. Of course, any sensible person knows that if the companies that are to be regulated pay $400 million to the regulatory agencies and furthermore promise all sorts of nice jobs when the regulators leave the agencies, you're going to have a conflict of interest. You're going to have lots and lots of corruption, which might explain why we heard so many lies from the public authorities about COVID and prevention and infection and vaccination. All the way down to how the, how the virus originated. Corruption all the way down. We need better education. When I say education, I mean forming the whole person, not just a bunch of book learning, definitely not the kind of book learning they're teaching you at liberal universities, we need good, solid education, which is why you got to check out Grand Canyon University. Are you ready to take the next step in your education, but struggling to fit traditional classes into your busy schedule? Grand Canyon University's online programs are designed to make earning your degree easy and accessible, no matter your age or stage in life. Whether you're a busy professional looking to advance your career or a stay-at-home parent juggling family responsibilities, their online courses give you the flexibility you need to learn on your own terms. Grand Canyon University specializes in helping you fit your bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree into your busy day. From scholarships to customized scheduling, your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Why wait? If you are ready to take your education to the next level, you need Grand Canyon University. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. It's a school I loved to visit and go speak at some years ago, and a number of my colleagues attended. Go to gcu.edu. That is gcu.edu. Speaking of financial incentives, the war in Ukraine looms in the background as the foreign policy issue dominating the presidential race. I think there are other rather important foreign policy issues, like the invasion happening across our southern border, two million foreign nationals illegally entering our country every year on top of the million who enter illegally. I think trade is a pretty important international issue. I think the fentanyl crisis originating in China and then pouring across that open border, I think that's a pretty big international issue. But the war in Ukraine is dominating. That is just a fact. And from the beginning, the more conservative people have argued that the war in Ukraine is not just a simple black and white issue of Putin is the most evil man that has ever existed and there's no complication whatsoever with regard to how Ukraine has conducted itself and how the West has conducted its policy toward Ukraine. That actually it's a little complex and NATO and the European Union and the United States have been involved in Ukraine in a way that might have provoked and escalated a conflict. This is not to absolve Putin. This is not to say he was justified in invading the country. This is not to say he's not a dirty, rotten, no good person. But it is to say that the situation is a little more complicated, and we've been involved in Ukraine for a very long time. The liberals say, no, absolutely not. If you ever suggest such a thing, you're a Putin stooge. If you don't want to send seven gazillion dollars over to Ukraine and, and start up World War III with a nuclear former superpower over Ukraine, which is now the symbol and emblem of, of every wonderful American value, then you're a terrible Putin stooge. However, 
a clip just cropped up from some years ago on C-SPAN, on Washington Journal, a show that I've been on a number of times. Have to give a hat tip to Michael Tracy here. This is a clip of Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat, explaining the United States' long-standing involvement in shaping the regime in Ukraine. So what is the best way the U.S. can help in this uh, situation? Well, I, I think the United States' strong voice in support of the peaceful protest movement um, is a big part of the story as to why there is an opportunity now uh, for the Ukrainian people to get what they want. Early on, the United States said that um, that peace should be observed in that square. We came down hard on Yanukovych when he violated uh, that piece when he sent uh, his forces into the square repeatedly to clear it, ultimately over the course of the last week resulting in dozens of people killed. Uh, and I think it was our role, including sanctions and threats of sanctions, that forced in part Yanukovych from office. Now, uh, the question is, what can we do to support this new government? There's going to be a lot of talk about an assistance package. Hear that? It was our role that forced Yanukovych the previous leader of Ukraine, who was viewed as being more pro-Russia, from office. So there's a pro-Russian leader of Ukraine. The United States, naturally, didn't like that very much. And so, according to Senator Chris Murphy, not according to the right-wing, far-right, QAnon, Putin stooge, whatever they want to say, according to a sitting mainstream Democrat senator, the U.S. ousted the other guy, resulting in regime change in Ukraine. With respect to Ukraine, we have not sat on the sidelines. We have been uh, very much involved, uh, you know, members of the Senate who have been there, members of the State Department who have been on the square. The administration, the Obama administration, passed sanctions. Uh, the Senate uh, was prepared to pass its own set of sanctions. And as I said, I really think that the uh, clear position of the United States has in part been what has helped lead to this change in uh, regime. He, he emphasizes it. He underlines it. He says the United States is largely responsible for regime change in Ukraine. So then the question becomes, why did we do it? Did we do it because we just sensed that there was a natural uprising out of the Ukrainian people and they were yearning in their hearts to oust this very, very bad man, Yanukovych, and we knew that there was a Washingtonian leader out there among the Ukrainian people, and we were going to find, identify that leader, and then install him into office? Or were there more practical incentives than that? There is a U.S. interest uh, here. We are in the middle of negotiating a new trade agreement with Europe. Um, to my state, it's enormously important. We do 40% of our trade in Connecticut with Europe. Um, if Ukraine is part of the European Union um, and thus is part of this new trade agreement with the United States, that could result in billions of dollars in new economic opportunities for the U.S. So we do have an economic interest in the Ukraine being part of the European Union, and we shouldn't be shy about um, making clear that interest. Now, of course, all the Democrats right now are being very, very shy about being clear about that interest, but credit to Chris Murphy for admitting it after the Maidan revolution, before this recent blow up in Ukraine. Now that no one in America wants to claim any role whatsoever in, in that regime change, but Chris Murphy's saying, yeah, we've got an economic interest. Absolutely. We're doing a new trade deal with Europe right now. If we can include Ukraine in Europe, then we'll get a lot more money, and that'll be great. 
Fine. I, I see that interest. That's one argument. You say, okay, we need to go meddle around in Ukraine and provoke Russia, by the way, in a buffer state between the global hegemon, albeit one that is under threat right now, the United States, and a nuclear former superpower, Russia, right up on Russia's border. Okay, we had this buffer state, but we're going to start meddling in there a little bit because we think we can make some money. Okay, well, what's the risk? What's the downside here? The downside, as any sensible person could have predicted, is that you will provoke Russia, you will create the appearance of, and maybe the reality of, an unacceptable security risk on Russia's border in an economically and a geopolitically very important country, and you will escalate tensions to the point of war that are escalating today, potentially to the point of World War III. That's the risk. And these short-sighted people filled with hubris and with not a care in the world for long-term consequences pushed forward because they said, oh, we can get a lot more money for Connecticut or something. And now they're completely changing the story. Don't let the memory hold that because it's not the far-right QAnon Putin stooge people who were saying this. It was a lot of sensible people. It was Sam Nunn. It was George Kennan, the author of The Long Telegram. It was Daniel Patrick Moynihan. It was Henry Kissinger. It was serious statesmen and serious foreign policy people who, who have been saying this since the early 1990s, that NATO and the West needs to be a little more modest and a little more reserved in the territories that it is taking over, because it all seems really, really clear to us on paper. You take on Ukraine, there will be no consequences. Well, we're looking at the consequences now. And is a, a better trade agreement or a more lucrative trade agreement worth the possibility of World War III? I'm not totally convinced it is. Now, this was the position that Ron DeSantis outlined uh, just a week or so ago. He said, the war in Ukraine is a territorial dispute, and I don't think the U.S. should be all that involved anymore. This was after Ron DeSantis had previously argued for a greater involvement, not boots on the ground, but uh, of funding the war in Ukraine. Now, Governor DeSantis appears to have modified his position even further in an interview with Piers Morgan. What's your view of Putin? Look, I think he's got grand ambitions. I think he's hostile to the United States. But I think the thing that we've seen is he doesn't have the conventional capability to realize his ambitions. And so he's basically a gas station with a bunch of nuclear weapons. And so for us, one of the things we could be doing better is utilizing our own energy resources in the United States. We could be permitting natural gas pipelines mm -hmm. from Marshallis, doing a lot in, uh, in, in Alaska. That's where he gets all his power. And obviously he's influenced Europe uh, by, by having so much energy. So the way to hit Putin is to hit him with energy. But I do think you look back, all the defense analysts and me in the past, we overestimated his conventional capability. This has been a huge mm -hmm. blunder for him, uh, huge costs. And, uh, you know, we'll see what ends up happening with his longevity and, and, and power. But, but this, has been a, this has been a loss for them. There is a move now to hold him accountable for war crimes, bombing maternity hospitals, you know, genocidal activity in parts of Ukraine, wiping out whole cities, Mariupol and others. Would you support that? I mean, I think he is a war criminal. Okay, so now we've returned to the more conventional Republican position here. Uh, Governor DeSantis uses this line. He says, Russia is a gas station with nuclear weapons, gas station with an army. Uh, this is a conventional Republican line. I think John McCain came up with it, but a lot of people, plenty of conservatives have used that line over the years. I'm not even knocking Governor DeSantis for doing this. Let's not forget President Trump previously had been uh, much tougher on the Ukraine war, much tougher on Russia, said we, that he, he bragged about funding the war in Ukraine, funding the Ukrainians. Uh, now he's become much more skeptical of the war in Ukraine, says we need 
to end the war in Ukraine right now. Governor DeSantis previously had seemed to suggest, okay, we got to stop the war in Ukraine right now. Now he seems to be getting a little tougher on it. I'm not mentioning this to attack Trump or DeSantis. I'm pointing out these ever-changing positions because this is a complex issue. And this is an issue on which DeSantis in particular is going to have to prove himself because he doesn't have foreign policy experience simply by virtue of the fact that he's a governor. And Florida doesn't have a foreign policy. It's got a lot of foreign nationals coming into it, but it doesn't have a foreign policy. So as it stands right now, the two candidates in the field, you would seem to have a more Ukraine war skeptical Trump and now a return to a more Ukraine war hawkish Ron DeSantis, even talking about potentially holding Putin accountable for war crimes. Where those positions are going to land, no one really knows. They've changed multiple times even in the last couple of weeks. But that will be a decisive issue. That is the foreign policy issue. And because the foreign policy has been run by the deep state for decades now, and because the deep state is a big issue that people tend to care about, uh, they care about that a lot more than foreign policy. And so foreign policy might come to the fore in this election. And these candidates should figure out where they stand on the issue. We got to clear the air. When you want to clear the air in your home, you got to check out Rabbit Air. Right now, go to rabbitair.com. Tell them Michael Knowles sent you. Guess what I was doing last night? Guess what I was doing for hours and hours last night? I was taste testing cigars with a, a really important big guy in the cigar industry. And we were at a cigar lounge here in Nashville. And guess what air purifier we were using in the lounge? The Rabbit Air A3. And when we pointed that out, I said, you know, I've got a Rabbit Air A3. He said, you have the A3? I, I, have, I have a bunch of the A3. It's my favorite air purifier. Rabbit Air's award-winning air purifiers are some of the best in the industry with advanced six-stage filtration and deodorization that can reduce airborne particles, odors, and pollutants to keep your air clean and fresh. Super customizable. You can turn it on and off and adjust it on your smartphone. It's certified asthma and allergy friendly by the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. It's absolutely fabulous for stogies. Go to rabbitair.com to speak to a Rabbit Air consultant. That is rabbitair, R-A-B-B-I-T-A-I-R.com. Don't forget to check out their artists series and special editions for a more aesthetically pleasing product design. And make sure you tell them Michael Knowles sent you. My favorite comment yesterday is from Rubber Ducky 8734 don't confuse him with rubber ducky 8733. He says, whoever writes Biden's speeches must secretly hate him. I, I would think so, or I, I at least see why you would think that. But the, the only weapon that Biden's speechwriter is employing against his boss is polysyllabic words. So with a threshold like that, even if Biden's speechwriter loved him, I'm not sure there's very much he could do. Speaking of polysyllabic words, you know the LGBT, LMNOP, pan, tran, thank you ma'am, gender community is ever multiplying into new identities. And there is a woman now who's gone viral for identifying as, as a new, it's the LGBTRTH, I want to say. She is identifying as a red-tailed hawk. My name is Horace and I'm a red-tailed hawk. In our world, I do have the body of a hawk, but while fronting, I consider myself a Therian because I am in a human body, but my identity is still a hawk. Not all animal alters will identify this way, and I am, in fact, the only animal alter in our system who does identify this way. 
I am doing my best to come to terms with living in a human body. At first, I wondered, is this a joke? Is this a troll? I don't think it's a troll. She seems pretty, pretty dead serious. And we've seen this kind of identity before. Famously, probably 15 or 20 years ago, there was a disturbed man who thought he was a cat and he called himself stalking cat and he had all sorts of cosmetic surgeries to make him seem more like a cat and all sorts of tattoos and all sorts of injections and things. And he crawled around and he, he earnestly said, I deep down am a cat. I know I, I was born in the body of a human, but my true identity is that of a cat. And very sadly, it didn't, didn't work out well for him. I, I think he committed suicide. Uh, obviously had a whole host of other mental problems that we're now not allowed to bring up in these identity questions. Uh, and now this woman is saying, I'm a red-tailed hawk. And people are going to laugh at this. Even some of the liberal, open-minded people who are accepting of the transgender, pansgender, non-binary identity people and, and uh, perspectives are, are going to say, well, this is silly. It's silly to identify as a red-tailed hawk. There is zero difference in principle or absurdity between this and transgenderism. Zero difference. It is precisely as absurd a claim. And it's the same claim in principle. The claim is, my body has nothing to do with who I really am. The body is a a facade. It's a deception. It's something foreign to our true self. Our true selves are deeper. And so I could be any, I could be an alien from Mars if such a thing existed, which obviously they don't. And unfortunately, some of my friends and colleagues at this office don't understand the reality of aliens or the unreality of aliens. That's a point. I'll have to talk about that in the coffee room here at the Daily Wire. Getting back to the video. There is zero difference in absurdity. If you think it's absurd that that woman calls herself a hawk, if you think that she's not really a hawk, then you cannot hold the belief that a man who thinks that he's a woman is really a woman. You don't need to get angry about it. You do, it's not, it doesn't have to be an emotional issue. It's just a simple question for philosophy and anthropology. Does our body have anything to do with who we really are? Is there a relationship between the body and the soul? What is the nature of that relationship? Is the nature of that relationship the view that we've held for 2,300 years, that the soul and body are united? Man is a composite of body and soul, and those things have a lot to do with one another. Or is it this new view that you can be a cat, or you could be a hawk, or you could be a woman, or you can be neither a man nor a woman? It's obviously the former, and so we need to stop indulging the latter, because I don't think anybody thinks we need to put a bird feeder in public schools. I don't think anybody believes we need to have a bird feeder at the office to indulge the true authentic identity of the woman who's a red-tailed hawk. Well, maybe a handful of people do believe that. Normal people don't. Okay, follow your ideas to their logical conclusion. That means we eradicate the ideology of red-tailed hawkomorphism from public life. And it means we eradicate the ideology of transgenderism from public life and Albigensianism from public life, the idea that the body and the soul have nothing to do with each other. And we return to our traditional view and we act in a way that is normal. And we got to do that sometime in the the short period of time that we are allotted on this earth because one day we're going to die. And that's why you got to go check out Epic Will. 
Right now, go to epicwill.com, use promo code Knowles. According to a recent poll, almost two-thirds of Americans do not have a will. It's kind of like being afraid your house will burn down, but not having homeowner's insurance, or being afraid of drowning, but refusing to wear a life jacket. Death is not something anyone likes to think about, but it's important to plan for the future and ensure that your loved ones are taken care of after you pass away. Whether you are a first-time parent early in your career or an empty nester, it is never too early or too late to write your will. With Epic Will, you can get it done in as little as five minutes for 119 bucks. Have you ever considered who will take care of your kids when you pass away? How about who will speak on your behalf should you ever find yourself in a situation where you're unable to make health-related decisions for yourself? Just do it. I put it off way too long. Now I can rest easy knowing that my money and my stuff and most importantly, my kids are taken care of. Do it right now. Go to epicwill.com. Use promo code Knowles to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That is epicwill.com, promo code Knowles. You cannot believe a word that the libs tell you as we observed at the top of the show. And one of the things the libs are telling you these days is that this gender ideology, the idea that a man can be a red-tailed hawk, the idea that a man can be a woman, it's, that's not really being taught to kids. Those Republicans are fear-mongering. They're, they're creating a panic, but it's not real. Nobody is teaching this stuff to little kids. Nobody like this second-grade teacher. So, uh, I had an interesting conversation with my students the other day because we were talking about uh, the civil rights movement. Um, And if you're someone who doesn't agree with, like, kids learning about transgender people, please just scroll and keep your negativity to yourself. Put a pause. I'm not going to. I did not scroll. I, I kept watching. And I'm glad I did keep watching because... I had been told that this thing was not happening in the classrooms, and this second grade teacher is telling me exactly what she does. Comparing the civil rights movement to um, civil rights that are being fought for today and comparing how people are fighting for these things. Of course, Put a pause compare- there. Th- this is the model for all of the leftist activism today. There's a really good book on this by Mike Gonzalez. The title of it now escapes me. It's a book about how the liberals in the 70s realized that the black civil rights movement was extraordinarily successful as a social revolution. And so they wanted to apply it to every issue that they possibly could. Any cause that tickled their fancy, they said, well, if we can present this as the civil rights movement, which is about a very particular case in American history, which is the position of black people in American society. Black people occupied a unique role in American society because of the persistence of slavery. But they're saying, no, this is not specific. This is not a unique place. We're going to apply it to women. We're going to apply it to Asians. We're going to apply it to sexually confused people. We're going to apply it to men who think they're women. We're going to apply it to all these sorts of things. Uh, This was promoted by the Ford Foundation and lots of very powerful interests in the liberal establishment. And this teacher is now one of the consequences of that. All the leftists say, okay, any issue we want, get putting that, that bird feeding nest in the middle school, that is about civil rights. Aired, um, issues coming up with race, because that is most directly connected to the civil rights movement. But in a video I shared, they discussed that civil rights are being fought for many different types of people to make sure everyone has the same rights. They mentioned fighting for rights for people of color, for women, for immigrants, and lastly, they said gay, lesbian, and transgender people. Now, many of my students already know about gay and lesbian people, um, but they didn't understand what transgender meant. 
Now, with my students being second graders, I had to make sure that my um, lesson was um, appropriate for that age group. Simply said that a transgender person is born um, in a boy or girl body and then in their heart they know that that doesn't match who they are and so they might then identify by a different gender. It might be a boy who identifies as a girl, a girl who identifies as a boy. Apologies for having to change the venue. But lastly, you know, I explained that it could be a boy that's a girl, a girl that's a boy, or someone who feels like neither. Now, why I felt okay sharing this was because... I'm going to pause I, before she gets to her conclusion. I love how she prefaces this with, and I had to make sure that this topic was appropriate for the seven-year-olds in my class. So I, you know, I, I made sure I was very responsible, and I told them that boys can secretly be girls, and girls can secretly be boys, and you can switch your gender, and you, and, and you can switch your sex, and you could be neither, actually. And, you know, isn't that really appropriate for seven-year-olds? Not only is this happening, as the liberal media tell you that it's not, the people who are peddling this are insisting that this is appropriate, that there's no, there's no reason even to raise a question about this loony lady teaching this to your seven-year-old child. They know that I identify as neither. I go by mix. There we go. Okay. Also, I told them about the trans teacher that teaches third grade. They are male to female uh, transgender. Okay. There, I just wanted to make sure this was appropriate uh, for the seven, seven-year-olds whose teachers are all openly indulging in this bizarre sexual fetish publicly in front of little kids. Could you imagine sending your kid that you walk into parent-teacher night and you see that your, your kid's teacher is a hulking dude wearing a dress and high heels. And, and you're told, this person is going to teach your child about reality. This person is going to teach your child how to view the world. This person is going to raise your child in many ways. How, how many hours a day do kids spend at school? Six hours a day? Seven, eight hours a day? The, your children might be spending more time, more of their waking hours at school than they will with you, which means they're going to be spending more of their waking hours learning from people who think that men can secretly be women and who dress up this way and who indulge all sorts of weird sexual fantasies all day long. How can you send your kids there? Well, some people don't have a choice. Some people don't have the opportunity to homeschool because they need two incomes. Some people don't most, most people don't have the ability to pay for private school. Unfortunately, most states controlled by Democrats don't allow for school choice. So you're not allowed to take your money from public education and take it to a place that's not going to trans your kid and not going to have openly sexually deviant teachers telling, telling your kid to call him mix or miss because he really knows in his heart that he's a woman or he's neither. He's neither a man nor a woman. So what do you do? That's a major political problem which is why we have to eradicate this from public life. <laughs> it's, because it's not just a private issue. All the time you hear from these people who have whatever sort of disordered desire, they say, hey, um, look, this is just me. Just leave me alone. I just want to live my life. No, you don't. You want to teach our kids. You want this to be enshrined in law. You want to rewrite the civil rights law. You want to, you want to remake all of our bathrooms, remake all of our sports teams. You want to totally change our conception of human nature. And the answer to that is no. We have to have a conception of human nature. We, have, we had a true one. You want a false one. You don't get the false one. We're not going to let you do that, especially not to our seven-year-old kids. There's a story I've wanted to get to. 
and I've got one minute left to do it, and I will do it. Kelly Clarkson. It's a very important story involving Kelly Clarkson. She suggested to me that all of this confusion, this personal confusion, this political confusion that we're, we're dealing with, that a lot of it probably owes to the breakdown of the American family. Kelly Clarkson, I guess, is divorced, and she's got two kids, and she described quite honestly how that divorce is affecting her kids. I literally ask my kids every night when we're snuggling and I put in bed, I'm like, are you happy? And like, if you're not, like, what could make you happier? No, that's it. Do they always say yes? No. Like, sometimes they'll say, especially the past two years, like a lot of it, and it kills me. But they'll, and I want them to be honest. So I I don't ever say, oh God, don't tell me that, you know? Um, But a lot of times it would be like, you know, I'm just really sad. You know, I wish mommy and daddy were in the same house. I wish, and they're really honest about it. And that's, and I'm raising that kind of individual. I want you to be honest with me. I won't be getting married, but like- Ever, ever. No, Mm -hmm. like in my life, you know, I've been through a couple of divorces in my own family, like as as a kid. And it's like, to me, you can be in love. I would- I would love to fall in love. Like I would love to find someone and fall in love and do that thing. But I I have children and that's why I hmm. say. It's very sad that she's divorced. It's horrible for the kids. I don't support divorce. I don't support actual divorce in any circumstance because I don't, I don't think that it is real. I, I think that what God has joined, no man can separate. And uh, there, the, and even just in practice, even if you're not that religious, if you are married and you have children and you get divorced, you're still married. You're even forget about the sacramental aspect. You're just practically speaking still married. You're going to be talking to your ex-husband or wife all the time. You're going to be arranging visitation with the kids. You're going to be arranging vacations. They're going to be coming in and out of your home very likely. So it just can't happen. It just doesn't actually happen in practice at a in a terrestrial level or even at a metaphysical, certainly not at a metaphysical level. Uh, and uh, in some cases, I would support uh, a separation. I think that would be, uh, you'd have a, a right to that, or it might even be necessary depending on risk and danger and abuse and, and all the rest of it. But as a, as a matter in principle, there's no such thing as divorce. But I, I give Kelly Clarkson a lot of credit here for one thing she said, which is, I'm not going to be getting remarried. No, I'm not going to be getting remarried, which is the traditional position of Christian civilization. There's really no such thing as remarriage. In fact, part of the cracking up of Western Christian civilization was because Henry VIII wanted to get remarried, and the Pope said, no, you can't. It's just not possible. I can't even do it, even if I wanted to tell you that you could get remarried, uh, while the the other spouse is still alive. Henry VIII (laughs) had an answer for that too, I guess. But what Kelly Clarkson is saying is, no, I'm not going to be just pursuing me. Uh, yes, I'd love to fall in love. Yes, it seems really nice, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. My concern is for my children, and I'm in the reality of, of this marriage. But the marriage is the fundamental political institution. So the libs are going to say, you're all fuddy-duddies. I can, you're oppressive. You're terrible if you want to put any restrictions on the way that people can dissolve marriages because they don't like the cut of their spouse's jib or something like that. But If you don't deal with marriage, if the political order doesn't take seriously marriage and the preservation of marriage, then you're you're, you're not going to be able to preserve your political order because marriage is the basic political unit. It's not a private matter. It's not a single individual. It's a public matter. It involves multiple people living together. That's the definition of politics. As goes the American family, so goes the American nation. Postmodernism's belief that truth and beauty are subjective is flawed. It extends to fundamental concepts 
and beings such as God. Keith Getty, the songwriter responsible for one of the most glorious modern day hymns, discusses this idea in Jordan Peterson's Logos and Literacy. John 1 begins with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. God is before all time. If he is the creator of the world, he created beauty. Beauty and truth are linked together. The postmodernists will tell us that beauty doesn't exist. It only exists in, in whatever you can create for yourself in life. But we believe that all the evidence around us points to a world, to music, to human love that all point to beauty, that point to a creator, God. Here is where I would normally tell you that Logos and Literacy is only available for Daily Wire Plus members, but we are making it available for free for everyone at dailywireplus.com, but only for a limited time. So watch Logos and Literacy today at dailywireplus.com. You cannot believe a thing the libs are telling you. That's our theme today. It's our theme this year for the last five years. And it's being reflected in the polls. 72% of Americans say the country is on the wrong track under Biden. This according to a Monmouth University poll. Only 17% of independents believe that Joe Biden's America is headed in the right direction. And the most depressing part of that poll is that I'm not convinced Biden won't win re-election. That's the most devastating part of that poll to me. Not just because the poll numbers could change. Let's say that this were the day before general election 2024, Monday night, and that those were the numbers. I still am not convinced that Joe Biden wouldn't win re-election, and you aren't either. The reason you're not is because Americans no longer have faith in the electoral system. It's not just Republicans. It's not just the QAnon, far-right-wing fascist, stooge, Putin-loving, whatever. It's the Democrats, too. The Democrats actually, according to surveys, so take social science with a grain of salt as you will, the the Democrats have less faith in our elections than the Republicans do. So I'm just, I'm I'm not saying that's right or that's wrong or here's the evidence that the 2020 election was stolen or here's the evidence that the 2000 election was stolen or any, I'm just, it's just a fact. Americans don't trust the electoral system. And I think it's quite clear that the system, all political systems are rigged and imperfect and corrupt to some degree. And in as much as ours is rigged, it would appear to be rigged, rigged rather, toward the libs. The libs have the political power in the United States. They have the power of the bureaucracy. They've got the power of the elected government right now, almost all of it. They've got the power in the media. They've got the power in big tech power and education, on and on and on. They've got the power. So when it looks like Trump's going to be reelected in 2020, they just change the rules. They win the election. That's, that's far more devastating. These are these issues that go a lot deeper than, ooh, is it Trump or DeSantis? I don't know. Ooh, is Biden going to run again or is it going to be Gavin Newsom? I don't know. My question is, where's the family going? Where where is religiosity in the United States going? John Adams said the country is built for a moral and religious people. He, that, that wasn't just a, a fun line. That wasn't just, uh, you know, a, a little bit of pop psychology or something. He's describing an essential character of the Constitution. As religiosity declines, deaths of despair increase and political stability increases. 
What's going on with that? What's going on with our border? Do we have a definition as a nation anymore? What's going on with our language? Do we know what words mean anymore? Do we speak the same language meaning English? Do we, do we even speak the same English language? Do we know what man means? Do we know what woman means? Sonnets are defined by limits. Good poet, bad poetry doesn't have any limits to it. And it sounds like slam poetry and it's the complete death of art. Good poetry, like Shakespeare, has lots of limits to it. And it's within those limits that you find that beauty. The same is true of nations. The same is true of all identity. We are defined as much by what we are not as what we are. We can see clearly what we are when we know what we are not. This is the topic of my speech tonight at Purdue. If you are around Purdue in Indiana, West Lafayette, please come on by. I'm told that there will be not one, but two simultaneous protests of my event. I haven't even finished writing the speech yet, but they're already protesting me. I, I have been told that there's a drag show at one of these protests, uh, and one of the drag performers is named Annihilation, which is kind of funny, but they missed the word. The word is supposed to be eradication, not, but anyway, they have that performing. So it should be quite a show. And then if you do manage to make it through the crazy liberal hordes, you can get into the auditorium and we can talk about what it means to be an American, what it means to be a man, what identity means in 2023. The rest of the show continues now. We have furries coming up. Make sure you go to dailywire.com slash Use promo code Knowles at checkout for two months free on all annual plans.